This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey, Jerry, I'm so excited our podcast because I want to know and Hibbly Horror Stories are doing a live event together in the Dallas area. Yep, Saturday, October 16th. It's going to be so much fun. Dude, you just completely ignored the fact that Mysterious Circumstances and Hillbilly Horror Stories have a live event the night before in Galveston, Texas. I did not. As a matter of fact, Justin, I was just going to bring up the Galveston show on Friday, October 15th. Jerry, why are you doing a commercial with Justin? Once again, you have given him special treatment over me. Besides, we have a special private dinner show in Memphis on that Tuesday, October 12th. Tracy. I would never give anyone preferential treatment over you. Of course you wouldn't. Thank you, Justin. Um, hello. Leslie Fear over here. Now everyone's ignoring me. Enough. Get your tickets and more information at hillbillyhorrorstories.com. We will see you there unless we kill each other first. Hey guys, welcome to episode 258 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy, we've got a fun show lined up tonight. Good. It's one that I was previously unaware of, but it's got a couple of different facets to it, and I think uh, people will really enjoy this one. Oh, kind of creeped up on you, huh? It did. Well, it's it's like I said, somebody told me before, they, they were like, I mean, what's going to happen when you run out of stories? Trust me, you're never going to run out of stories. You would think, though, right? You would think, but, but there's but never. There's so many stories that we have never even heard of mm-hmm. that when you start digging, you're like, my goodness, there's so much here. Yeah, it's really fun to find those stories. Obviously, we want to start off by thanking all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thanks to all of you for what you do. I just saw the other day where, uh, I can't remember where it was, I want to say New Hampshire, where they had the canine that was shot and killed. And they had the little funeral and gave the little flag to the, the... colleague that had been working with him for the last 11 years that was so sad yeah it was very sad but very respectful that they did that and they need to have that you know praise as well so So, well that dog had won awards for saving people in the past so that's why they had looked at it so well anyways um obviously thank all of you guys and we want to make sure that you know we mention that there's been a lot of tragedy in the last couple of days there's always tragedy and we try to mention what we can on the show, but unfortunately we may miss some here or there because it doesn't, you know, trickle down our way as quick as it, it does when we do the shows or whatever. But uh, so if we don't mention something, don't ever feel like that it's not something that we just don't care about. It's just it probably just either slipped our mind at the time we were recording or we didn't write it down or, or what have you. Because there's just unfortunately so many things. But I know one of the things we have to mention is the apartment complex in Miami. Yeah, that's, condominium. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's such a horrible situation with so many people missing and so many firefighters and and um, other emergency medical people out there risking their lives to try to help and and find these people that are missing. It's just uh, it's a horrible situation in there. It is. I mean, I cannot even imagine that. Just some things are just unimaginable, and that is one of those things. And you know, we are praying that they can find some survivors, please God, and be with all those people trying to help, you know, find them and, and you know, just be with the ones that have lost their loved ones. And it's a very sad day. Yeah. And then uh, I just saw like a hot air balloon in New Mexico apparently yeah. uh, had an accident and, and there's at least six people dead in that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like I said, they're all over the place, and you know we would like to be able to mention them all. Unfortunately, there's too many to to be able to even know all of everything that's happened. Yeah. So, so, thoughts and prayers. Obviously, with these types of things going on, sometimes this raises anxiety in people. 
when they start hearing all these horrible tragedies going on because they start thinking, well, what if, what if that was me? What could that happen here? And you know, it's, it's a sad state of mind. Unfortunately, that some people, that's the way their mind works. They, they have anxiety when they see something, they automatically start thinking mm-hmm. about, Oh, oh goodness. What well, if I mean, yeah. Me? I mean, honestly, who would, I would never think of something like it happening. I mean, who would think of that? Right. But if you're struggling with that type of thing, and you need to talk to somebody. You know, we talk about suicide all the time on on the show, and and suicide is a part of mental illness, but there are several other parts like anxiety. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so we we want people to know we're available to to you for whatever the situation is. So if you just need to talk to somebody, we're here. And uh, if you'd rather talk to somebody that's a little less personal. Uh, maybe somebody you don't know, an anonymous, you could always try the suicide hotline. It is 1-800-273-8255. You can also text at 741-741. And also you can reach out to anybody in our group. They are the most awesome group I've ever known. So, you know, we're always here for you guys. Just please don't hesitate. Tracy, as usual, this episode is brought to you by OU Kateko Hot Sauce, the number one habanero-based hot sauce in the United States. Top 10 out of all hot sauces. Doesn't matter what they're made out of. True. Could be made out of uh, porcupine seed. Yeah. I, I made that up, I think. Shoot. I bet you porcupine tastes good. Once you get past them pesky needles. They ate that on Naked and Afraid that time. I know they did. Oh, disgusting. <laughs> but it would probably be pretty good with some L.U. Cateco hot sauce. Hey. And you can get yours at most of your major grocers, or you can get it at com. And if you put in Hillbilly Horror... You will get 10% off your entire purchase. So go load up. Load it up, y'all. All right, Tracy, let's get into the story. And this is funny. You know, we talk about, like, earlier that it's funny that the stories that we don't know. Mm, oh, gosh. I can't and imagine. this is a story we're going to talk about the only unsolved murder in the history of the city of Claremont, Florida. And they go way back to the 1890s. This is the only one they haven't this solved? This is the only one that's unsolved. Like out of everything that's happened there? Yes. Oh my gosh. The only, only one unsolved. Well, they don't have a ton of murders to begin with. I mean, but, that's a great thing, but still, that's pretty impressive. But if you're unfamiliar with Claremont, it's just outside of Orlando, and there's about 35,000 people as the population that live there. And two of those people are Diane and Kelly from History Goes Bump. They sure are. And also, my ex-wife, she remarried some some years ago, and her father-in-law lives in Claremont. Yes, so. he does. But the funny thing is, as I was saying earlier, Diane and Kelly live there. Mm-hmm. And Diane does a show on paranormal stuff. She said she was unfamiliar with the story. And Get it's in here. the city she lives in. So that shows you that you're never going to run out of stories, because well, a lot of times you don't even know what's going on in your own city sometimes. Mm. And, you know, I find out stories in Louisville and Lexington and whatever that... All the time that I'm like, oh, I've never heard of that. Yeah. And so you would think, after digging for five years for this show, that we would have come across everything in our city. And But nope, there's always something new. So our story is not going to start in Claremont, though. It's going to start in Jacksonville, Florida. John Harden. And, and let me say, every time I hear that name. I was going to say, why does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar probably for the same reason it sounds familiar to me. You remember they used to do those old Time Life books all the time? Yeah. And they would do one of the ones about the old Wild West. Yes. And one of the ones they would do is John Wesley Harden, who once shot a man for snoring too loud. Oh, that ain't why I think oh, about it. Oh, that's why I was thinking about it. I don't know why so, I think about it. <laughs> but that was John Wesley Harden. He was out in the Wild West. But every time I, I always remember them, John Wesley Harden, who once shot a man for snoring too loud. Look, and that's I've the only there. thing, I, and that's the only re- whatever. That's the <laughs> only reason that I remember John Wesley Harden. I know nothing about John Wesley Harden except for he shot a man. Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. Anyways, so this John Harden though, he married his high school sweetheart. Her name was Rita, and they go on to have four children. At least, according to the, my records. You're going to find out there's, and we talked about this the other day, this is a true story. This is something that made the news, obviously, over and over again. And there's still some discrepancies in the story, which we'll get into as we go along. But I don't understand how something can be true and be discrepancies like this. I don't know. That makes but no sense. like that, there's the first one. 
according to most of what I've read, they had four children. But the case, this case was actually on Unsolved Mysteries. And on Unsolved Mysteries, they said they had three children. Maybe that's the mystery. Or the, vice the versa. But vice versa. It, it might be. They might have said four children on there. But regardless, some things say three children. Some say they had four children. So I don't know. Mm. So, Anyways. After 14 years of marriage, which is roughly the same time we've been together. John walks into the kitchen after work one day. He hugs his wife. Doesn't seem like anything's going on. I mean, it's a normal day. But he tells her that he loves her. He loves the kids very much. But he has to go away for a while and get himself straight. And that he would come back when he's worked out all of his issues. Now, Rita said this came out of the blue. And she really had no clue what he was referring to about getting himself together. Well, that's really weird. Yeah, so he just, you know, hey, I love you and the kids, but uh, I think I'm going to head out. So he had some inner demons he had to take care of. Well, you would think. So he leaves, but he never did return back to Rita. (gasps) Never? He got a divorce, and he remarried less than a year later to a woman named Victoria, who was much younger than him. She was approximately 19 years old, and he was in his early 30s when this happened. Well, what a douche. My guess is, and I'm purely speculating, my guess is he probably had met her and was probably having, you know, maybe an affair or they had talked about, you know, being together. So this was the chance to do it instead of just manning up and telling his wife, you know what, I've met somebody else. I think I want to go. I think he just said, hey, I got to take care of some stuff and... And then once he was away, then figured it was easier to make a clean break in two steps rather than one step. So so how did she find out? Oh, I don't know that she did. I mean, Well, I mean, she found out eventually, but I don't know when she eventually said. I just know he got married and moved away. So he and Victoria, they had a baby. And a year and a half after leaving Rita, he and Victoria and their nine-month-old Moved to Claremont, Florida. More discrepancies. My understanding is that Victoria actually inherited this house. And they decided that they were going to live in this house while they were trying to sell it. And that it was even possible that before they even moved in, they had the house like a contract for somebody who might buy it, but it was something dragging it out. Okay. So that's my understanding. But once again... If you watch the Unsolved Mysteries, it shows John down there seeing the house for sale. And he walks up to the porch and says, hey, are you the owner? So they made it like they just bought the house down there. Okay. But most of what I see, I I did a lot of digging on this one because there were discrepancies to try to find. But most of what I saw says that Victoria inherited that house some way. All right. So John, you got to know, was kind of a jack of all trades. He was a mechanic. But he had started his own um, refrigeration company down there. And he would work on everything from air conditioners to refrigeration. But he would also work on various other restaurant equipment. His company, by the way, was called Mango Refrigeration. And that was actually Victoria's maiden name. So that's why he named it Mango Refrigeration. All right. So now that you got some background... This brings us to the night of March 22nd, 1975. I'm going to tell you what I believe to be the facts in the case, but as I said earlier, there are definitely some variations as to what happened, which I don't quite understand, but I'll try to break it down. At this time, the Hardin family had been in Claremont for about a year, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. On this night, he receives an emergency call from a restaurant in Groveland, Florida, not too far away. All three of the Hardens, him, Victoria, and the the baby, they get into his work truck and they drive to a vet drive-in. The restaurant's chicken fryer, apparently, needed a part and John went down there to fix it. While the Hardens were in Groveland, somebody cut their phone lines at their house at 486 Osceola Street in Claremont. 
the Hardens finally make it back to their house at approximately 10.45 p.m. John pulls his work truck into the driveway. Now, it's important to note that the driveway has a little turnoff into the backyard, which is pretty close to the back stairs that lead to a little porch that's right there at the landing. Shortly after they returned home, John went to the second floor bathroom and took a shower. The bathroom was right next to the bedroom that he and Victoria share. From the bathroom window, he notices that there's a small fire on his truck or very near his truck. This is one of the discrepancies we're going to get into a little bit later. He runs into the bedroom. He throws on a flannel shirt and a pair of jeans. He grabs a fire extinguisher and he runs down the back steps, down the back porch, and to the truck. Now, at this point, John was shot with a 20-gauge shotgun blast directly in the back. Oh, man. Neighbors heard the blasts, as well as Victoria. They thought it was an explosion, maybe the truck exploding, so they called the fire department. Fire department arrived one minute after the call. Damn, that was quick. Yeah. Two neighbors had already rushed over, and they had already got the fire under control. But John Harden was laying on the ground in the vicinity of where the fire was. He was transported to South Lake Memorial Hospital, and he died at approximately 1125. Hmm. So think about the timeline here. They get home at 1045. John took a shower, was shot, and died at the hospital at 1125. That was Yeah, 40 minutes. Yeah. From from the time they got home to the time he was at the Mm -hmm. hospital. So all this happened quick. Right beside the back door of that house, where Hardin came out at, there are some bushes. And in those bushes, a shotgun and several shotgun pellets on the ground and in the doorframe of the house were found. So let's talk about some discrepancies. First of all, there are several stories that say that John and Victoria were asleep in their bed and they were awakened by the smell of smoke. And that's how they noticed the fire. Most of my research, though, leads me to believe that it actually happened as I stated. He was in the bathroom after the shower, saw the the flames, rushed and got dressed, ran down the steps. And most of that kind of ties into the fact that regardless of whether he'd been asleep or not, he got dressed. He had on a flannel shirt and a pair of jeans when he went down there. Also, there's some stories that say that John put out the fire and was heading back into the house, and as he was headed up the porch, his head was shot off by the shotgun blast. And we both know that's not true, because the autopsy report clearly says that he was shot in the back. So like I said, this is a true story. This happened. But yet there are stories saying they were asleep, There are stories saying he was in the bathroom after a shower and saw the flames. There are stories saying, once again, and I know it's a TV show, but Unsolved Mystery shows him being asleep, and he shows him running down there and fighting the fire in just his underwear, which was not the case because he was wearing, I know the clothes and stuff he was wearing. So that's like I said, I'm not saying, I know TV shows are going to screw stuff up on occasion, but this is- Let's just stick to your story. Right. That's what I'm saying. This is what I think it is. There's also some questions about who found the body and whether the neighbors were actually put put out the fire or the fire department. And the two really couldn't find anything uh, as far as that goes. I really couldn't find anything that told me any different. All I know is when the fire department arrived, there was two neighbors there put that had already put the fire out. That's another reason why, once again, not to keep harping on Unsolved Mysteries, they show like this truck ablaze. But by all everything that I'm seeing says it was a small fire. And I don't know where the fire was, if it literally was on the hood or something like that. But it must not have been much of a fire because the neighbors already had it put out by the time the fire department got there. And we've already established it only took a minute for them to get there. So if the fire department was there and it was less than a minute, how did the shooter get away so quick? Apparently, this house is only two blocks from uh, Lake Mineola, and they suspect that whoever the shooter was made their way 
to the lake and possibly escaped in like a rowboat during the commotion of the fire trucks and everything coming. As we mentioned, this is the only unsolved murder in the city's history. Police were very stumped because they found no motive whatsoever. And without a motive, they really couldn't come up with any possible suspects. Well, what about his first wife? Well, I'm not going to lie. I would think that would be the immediate thought. And I saw some interviews with his first wife, Rita. And she really wasn't shying away from publicity. I would think if she had something to do with it, she wouldn't, when like Unsolved Mysteries, interviewed her. And I would think if they came calling to interview her 10 years later or 15 years later when this was, she would probably, if she had something to do with it, just say, no, I don't want to have anything to do with an interview. But she actually spoke very highly of him, believe it or not. She talked about he was very protective of his kids. And then when they were sick, he would always make sure he was in there in their bed and making sure they were covered up and all this stuff. That seems contradictory for somebody who would run out on their kids, but that's what I was thinking, but that's what, you know, but she spoke very highly of him. Now they had the gun, but it wasn't traceable to anybody. They were able to determine that whoever it was that shot them had, Cut the phone lines, probably while they were gone earlier today on their run. And they knew that obviously it was shot from behind the bushes. So the whole fire was an ambush. The reason the fire was set was to get him out of the house because they just sat there and waited. Mm -hmm. Sadly, after the death, John was buried with a military headstone, but his name was misspelled. His name is spelled H-A-R-D-E-N. But on his military headstone, it was spelled H-A-R-D-I-N. And his birth year is wrong. What is wrong with people? Like, he was born in 1944, and it said 1943 on there. So, even in death, not only is it the one murder that's unsolved there... But even his headstone is spelt wrong. Well, I mean, I hope they made them fix that. No, it's still like that. Why? Why would nobody fix that? I don't know. So, this case has been reopened twice. It was reopened when Unsolved Mysteries came down and and did the uh, episode on it. Mm-hmm. The... Police department down there said they never had a suspect. They had a couple of thoughts. They had a couple of things that came through, but there was never enough evidence to even list a suspect in the case. That is so crazy. So Unsolved Mystery comes through and they do the episode in 1990. They reopened the case at the time. That probably wouldn't be surprising that they've unsolved mysteries has probably had some cases reopened a bunch of times oh, because sure. of the show. But what if I told you that the unsolved murder wasn't the reason that the show was on unsolved mysteries? Or they what? Why? Tell it me. was on the Halloween episode of October thirtieth, nineteen ninety one, and this was because of the subsequent hauntings and other eerie, strange stories that involved this case. So let's start with the story that I found the most intriguing. So we're going to start in Richmond, Virginia in 1968. Keep in mind, this is seven years before John Harden's death. And what was it? uh, Six years before he even moved to Claremont. June Ferris... She's in Virginia, 1968. She starts having these very strange dreams. Dreams that she would have for several months. In her dreams, she was in a house. A house that she had never been in before. 
In these dreams, she was always in a second floor upstairs bedroom. She would always come out of the, the bedroom door and go into the hallway, turn to the right, and go down a narrow staircase. She would get to the bottom of the staircase and turn left and go through the kitchen where she would see the stove and a refrigerator on the same wall. During this time, she would feel very anxious, as if she knew something was getting ready to happen. She would then step out of the back door onto the back porch and hear a loud bang, and this is when she would wake up. Oh, like when he got shot. Yes. Bang. But keep in mind, this was 1968, seven years before this happened. Oh, before or after? Yeah, seven years before it happened. Okay. So this dream happened, she said, at least once a month for four years until her family moved to Orlando. Two years after moving to Orlando, June was driving through Claremont in 1974. She sees this beautiful Victorian house, and she sees that it's for sale. She calls the realtor to ask if she could take a look at it. June, after getting the approval, brings back a friend, and they walk through the house and do a good little little look through. June says it was like having deja vu. Her and her friend get upstairs, and they see a second stairway that's leading down mm-hmm. the back wall. Her friend makes the comment, I wonder where those stairs go. June says, I know where they go. Downstairs to the kitchen and to the back porch. She then tells her friend that this is the house from her dream. That is so weird. Now keep in mind, this is 1974. June and her family would eventually buy and move into this house but not until four years later in 1978. So I was doing some quick math, and I came to the conclusion that if John was killed in 1975, and they had lived there for a year, that must have they must have just moved in there shortly after June had looked at the house, because she looked at it in 74. Remember I said earlier that Victoria had uh, inherited the house and she had planned to sell it. I think the house was probably for sale before they moved in, and this was the time when June saw it. Because uh, it would put it about that same time. Mm-hmm. So June's dream had her coming down that back staircase and going out the back porch where she would hear a loud bang. Was she foreshadowing John Harden's death? Did she see that before it happened? This was the final route that he would have taken out of the house before his death. In a house that she had never been in before. In her dreams. Gosh. What brought her to this house? This is like some uh, Tim Mullins, Hibbley Horror House stuff. Yeah. So her family moves into the house. It's now three years after the murder. But supposedly her family doesn't know anything about this murder. They just move in. Yeah. And they would soon find out, though, as strange things started to happen immediately the day that they got there. They ha- they brought a boat with them. Mm-hmm. And you know how you have the trailer hitch mm-hmm. on the, the, the trailer of the boat. And once it's off the hitch, it's either going to last straight Take on the down. ground. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, he put... The, the father put in a uh, sawhorse there and laid the hitch on top of that so it would lay... Straight, just like it was on the car. The youngest daughter there, uh, June's daughter, Robin, she says she was out there while they were unpacking, and she looks at it, and the trailer hitch lifted up, scooted over, and laid itself on the ground. She said it lit- It didn't slide off. It didn't fall off. It was literally like somebody picked it up and moved it. And her dad's like, what are you doing, Robin? She's like... I didn't do anything. This is what happened. So he went over there, picked it up, put it back. Mm-hmm. And this happened several more times. Robin said that she was shocked that it happened so fast that she even questioned whether she saw it or not. But it happened so many times. Yeah, that she had there's no way it. that she could question it anymore. Things would continue to happen over the next few years. Robin and her husband, David, 
they lived there in the house for a while with their family. They were in their early 20s. And David was scared to death of this house. He knew it was haunted and he didn't like it. One night, they're laying in bed asleep and he's awakened by the sound of several music boxes playing at the same time. Now, he wakes Robin up. She had a collection of music boxes. Yeah. So he knows there's music boxes in the other room or, on the, you know, across the room. So he might have thought it was her, maybe. Yeah. So she gets up. She goes over to check it out. And she said the keys were turned off on all of them, but they had all been wound up and were playing regardless. Things would only get stranger from there. In 1985, Bob Vitter. He was a non-believer in ghosts. He started to date June's youngest daughter, Lori. He would quickly become a believer. So he's over the house one night. They're on the couch. They're just relaxing. They're watching some TV. It's a couple of nights before Halloween. And he hears the back screen door slam at that back porch. He assumed that it was June or her husband. So they just ignored it. But then they hear these heavy boot steps on the hardwood floor that led from the kitchen and through the hallway and through the uh, the foyer area in there. Mm-hmm. Bob felt like somebody was watching them. And he could still hear the sound of the boots. So he got up and decided he was going to follow it down the hallway. And he followed the sound, but eventually he stopped out of fear. <laughs> oh, man. So people in the house now, they were hearing ghosts, but nobody had seen a ghost yet. Oh. Robin was walking down the main staircase, not the back one, just the main staircase. She said she got this really cold chill. She compared it to opening a freezer door in the middle of of summertime. Mm -hmm. Just that chills and stuff that run through you. She said that she saw a ghostly figure. It was translucent. And it walked right through her and down the staircase. So she she was heading up. She stopped and just after it went through her and looked. And she said it walked right past her. She said it was definitely a person. It walked past it walked her or through, through her? her. Well, it walked through her, but then she watched it as it kept going past. Oh, I wonder if she felt something when it did it. She felt that cold chill. <gasps> wow. She said it was definitely a person in their early 30s. She said it was like a vapor, but it quickly disappeared. Now, Bob, we talked about Bob a second ago, Vitter, he had a similar experience. This was about three months later. He was upstairs preparing to do some painting. He went up into the attic, and at the top of the attic, at the top of the stairs, was a misty vapor, and he said it was the shape of a person. He took a step towards it, and the vapor shot directly towards him. It felt like a cold blast of air and a musty smell that he said always appeared anytime somebody had one of the ghostly encounters. So anytime there was any experience that they felt like it was ghosts, this musty smell appeared as well. Well, I mean, hello. Yeah. <laughs> Probably that old sheet. <laughs> so in October of 1985, Bob starts researching the house. He found some old newspaper articles in the library. This is when he found out about the murder of John Harden. The Ferris's continued to have experiences, including a man standing over top of Robin's young son in the middle of the night. So what happened is her son, which I believe was probably four, five years old, he was asleep and he woke up and there was a guy just standing at the bottom of his bed. And it freaked the kid out and he started screaming and stuff and people ran in to see what was going on. Now, this is where it comes in where Rita, uh, John's first wife, Harden's first wife, said that that didn't surprise her because how protective he was over the kids. Yeah. So it didn't surprise her mm-hmm. to hear that that would have been one of the deals. But... Um, his mom wouldn't real thrilled Robin... So she decided to come in there and she just started yelling and she said, I don't care who you are, don't ever come in here and scare my child again. 
And they said they don't know if the kid just never said anything about seeing it again, but he never, ever claimed to have an experience like that again. It was a one-time thing. Hmm. Well, I guess that's a good thing. Yes. Obviously, it didn't take too long after all these things started happening for June Ferris to realize that her dream had some kind of connection to John Harden. And she thinks that he was trying to actually tell her about the shooting and the murder even years before the incident even happened, somehow, some way. The Ferris family moved out of the house in 1990. So that's the end of the story, correct? No, I guess not. No, of course not. That's when Ken and Donna Hattler moved in. Shortly after Ken and Donna moved in, that's when Unsolved Mysteries came to the house to film. They have pretty much become experts at this point in the case. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, Robert Stack said that uh, when the crew of Unsolved Mysteries was there, there was a bunch of strange stuff that happening happened to the film crew. He said that they had lights flicker on and off. They had doors opening and closing. A bunch of equipment failed and a, widow, a window in the attic shattered for no reason. So did these new people that moved in have any idea about the house? Yes. Oh, they did. Okay. They did. Hatley said that they had uh, their share of things happen, but it seemed like everything kind of died down after the film crew came there for Unsolved Mysteries. So they feel like that maybe because of the fact that John was getting some attention towards his case now that that's all it really took for him because they really hadn't had much happen since then. There is one other story about an elderly couple that lived there before June Ferris's family lived there. So this goes back, I think they were probably the first people to move there after the murder because this was in 1976. The elderly couple was living there. Their grandson was visiting. He left the house to go meet a girl. My, by all intents and purposes, I think he was like 16, 17 years old. I didn't get an age, but I think that's about his age. He left to go meet a girl. When he came back, he took the back staircase mm-hmm. to come up. The grandparents were asleep and they were awakened by his screams. His grandpa rushed down the staircase to see what happened. He slipped in blood and fell down the steps himself. His wife found both of them laying side by side on the steps. The grandson had a big gash in his in his forehead. And he said that he didn't remember anything, but he refused to ever come near that house again. The, the grandpa was fine, and the grandparents were so freaked out at what happened, they immediately put the house up for sale. Oh, my gosh. wonder what hit him in the head. I don't know. Maybe he just fell and hit his head on the banister or something. Mm. But either way, something freaked him out. Oh, yeah, definitely. Anyways. That house has had some stuff go on, for sure. How about, how about that for a cool story? It's very cool. And it's a beautiful house. Oh, is it? Oh, man. Yeah. They have, like, a wraparound porch? Yep. Ugh. It's like a, almost like a little mini plantation-style house. Aw. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, is there anybody in it today? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah it's just it's a regular still, house. I mean, it's not it's a museum still, or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's very interesting. Pretty cool place. Yeah. We should go check it out. We should, actually. I'm going to send Diane. That... I got the exact address. I'll send Diane down there and make her check it out. There you go. She's right in that neck of the woods. Heck yeah, why not? Um, well, I just feel like it's weird, though. We didn't hear that much about Victoria. Well, there really wasn't nothing to Do talk you know what I'm about. Saying? I mean, like... they lived there for, they knew each other for a year and a half. They had a baby. He died. She moved on. She sold the house. She did now. I will say this about Victoria: after the murder, she never stayed at the house again. Oh, she didn't. Well, no, that you was can't blame at, her. no. She never stayed at the house again. Mm-hmm. So I guess that is kind of important to bring up. Yeah. Well, Teresa, we have a special guest. Who? We have Molly Mave Egan, and she wrote a book that's called "Behind the Blue Curtains," and it's basically. It's not one for the kids, and I say that at the beginning, so I'm just telling you that it's a, a lot of adult-type content. It involves some me- sexual misconduct in the Amish community, 
And uh, she wrote the book telling a young lady's story. And it's it's sad. It's sad that what, what goes on in some of these religious communities that yeah. people can get away with. But uh, if you're curious about some of the stuff that goes on in Amish communities that you don't hear on the news all the time, it's a, it's a pretty good listen and the book's pretty awesome. So, okay. but, so let's go ahead and uh, let's take a quick break from our sponsor and then we'll come back. We'll catch you up on what's going on on some shows and then uh, we'll do our Patreon and stuff and then we'll listen to Miss Molly Mae Vegan. All right. Sounds great. All right, Tracy, we are back and we are down to our last 10 tickets for St. Augustine. Oh, wow. And we don't have many more tickets left for the um, St. Augustine Lighthouse investigation that we're doing the night before. Okay. So I'm just saying, you guys, if you if you want to go, you better snag it now. And then you can go to Beecher's Lodge. They still have deals on a couple of rooms. They're at the beach. So you can come stay and see us and do the investigation and hang out at the beach with us. Man, that sounds like a fun deal. It's going to be. I can't wait. Very relaxing. Louisville tickets. We've sold half of those tickets already. Okay. Our five-year anniversary, we've added somebody. We've got Bob and Brittany, Tales from the Dark podcast. Great. So we've got now them, which their their show is blowing up. It's, uh, it's, it's a really good show if you hadn't heard it. Tales from the Dark podcast. And... So they're going to be emceeing the show and doing a little bit. Of course, we've got Brohile, we've got us, and we've got uh, one of my favorite couples out of Louisville, Louisville's own, we drink and we know things, Yeah. Tom and Andrea Payne. It's going to be a fun, fun show, for right. sure. And then you probably heard the commercial at the very beginning. We've got the other three shows, and we got Bobby Mackey's, but um, Dallas, Galveston, Memphis, go snatch those. The cruise is still more people signing up every single day. Go to hillbillyhorrorstories.com. There's information on all those events, and you can buy tickets for everything that we got there. Good. Sounds fun. What do you got over there going on? Uh, our iTunes this week is bharebo476, Warlock of Words, Mojo Lobster, and Jason B. Thank you guys for your really nice reviews. They were awesome. You guys never cease to amaze us. It's great. So keep those those uh, reviews coming. Oh, and we did find out that uh, last week they were talking about the, where the one lady was complaining about the helicopter. Oh, yeah, 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 helicopter. Yeah. We yeah. found out that that was another podcast that had played an episode on our show. Oh. <laughs> so I can't remember what it was right off the bat, but. Okay. But it was, it, it is one that I guess the guy did interview somebody in a helicopter, but it wasn't our show. Okay. Well, good. Because I'm like, I know that I don't know a lot of things, but I surely would have remembered that. <laughs> Um, our Patreons are Patty Foster, Sandra Merrifield, and Laura Neese. Thank you guys uh, for your support. We really appreciate all that you do for us. We love you so much. And just keep on listening. All right. Let's listen to Molly Maeve Egan. Hey, guys. I am excited to have uh, an author on the show that I think has big things in her future. And we're going to talk about some of those things tonight. Miss Molly Maeve Egan. Welcome to the show, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited as well because when I found out the story of your latest book and, and I started reading about just the, I guess, the circumstances behind it, it was something that, A, that caught me off guard because it wasn't something that I guess, you know, when you talk about it in the book, it's not something that's really common out there. And I want to mention before we get too far into this, the book is called Behind Blue Curtains. Molly, this book deals with a lot of sexual, we'll say crime, because that's the way, I, obviously, yeah. I see it. So I want to make sure people listening out there, because we have a lot of people listen with their kids. This might not be a part you want to keep going on to, because we are going to talk about some of these crimes. And if that's something you're uncomfortable with, I just want to make sure that you know that that's, that's going to come up in this discussion right a bit. So the book is Behind Blue Curtains. And that's because this deals with some sexual assaults in the Amish community. And in particular, it follows the story of a young lady by the name of Lizzie Hirschberger. My first question is, before we get into details of the book, was how did you get involved with Lizzie and, and be the person to write this book with her and to share her experiences? Well, I met Lizzie through a friend who was former Amish also. 
she knew that I was taking editing work and she said, hey, can you take on a project I just don't really have time for? Lizzie wrote 40,000 words about what it's like to grow up Amish. Maybe it'll be an ebook. I said, sure. And that's how I met Lizzie. That was the book's intention. Little did I know that we would go on this incredible journey together and find her justice. I had no clue that was going to happen when I started this. Share with the listeners a little bit about Lizzie's story as far as what happened to her that had her actually writing down her memoirs. So Lizzie was raised Swartz and Struber Amish. I still have trouble with that word. It's very conservative Amish, but to be clear, when you're Amish, you're very conservative and a Baptist. So there's no electricity, there's no television, no radios, no music, no books unless they're approved by the church, no education past eighth grade. And if you're boy or girl, you are gonna be a wife and a mother. Starting at 14, you're trained as Lizzie was, they're called mods which I believe is a German word for maid or an Amish word. They have their own language for maid. And that's their only option. There's no other option. They're not taught any sex education, but they are taught that if a girl or a woman is sexually assaulted, it was her fault for not being modest enough. So that goes to show you a little bit about Lizzie's upbringing Hmm. in Minnesota. I know you were talking about, what's it, uh, Swartzenstruben? It takes a while. <laughs> Swartzenstruber. Okay. Now, that's the most common form of Amish, though, correct? Uh, it's the most conservative. And yes, the other Amish sects that have come off of that have done so because they were more progressive. Pretty much, if you're real Amish, if you're Swartzenstruber Amish, but don't quote me on that. I wasn't raised that way. (laughs) I just took me almost four years to learn all about it. Man. Lizzie, during her experiences here, in her early years, obviously, she had some issues. There was some sexual misconduct by one of the deacons there that she dealt with. Tell me a little bit about that. After Lizzie graduated from eighth grade, when she turned 14, she was sent to live at a pastor's house as basically their indentured servant. So she wasn't only taking care of the kids and cooking and cleaning, but she was milking the cows and you know working around the clock. And in these communities, a lot of the men just feel that it's also the mod's job to take care of their needs sexually. And that's what happened to Lizzie. So growing up with no affection whatsoever, not not ever hearing I love you, to have somebody pay attention to you, it's called grooming, and show you any tenderness or affection at all is very confusing. And that's why we call it rape. And it happened over an extended period of time. I could go on. Lizzie was kicked out of her house after her parents found out. They called it an extramarital affair. But she didn't actually leave the community until a few years later. The no affection thing, you said that she had never even heard as much as I love you. Is that common in the Amish community or is that just her personal situation? Do you know? It's very common in the Amish community. So for example, one of the scenes is there was a house fire and a funeral after two little girls died. There was an English, they called the outsiders English person at the funeral. And she reached down to hug the mother of these two girls and everybody was shocked. You didn't do that. There was no touching, of course, unless it's so ironic because they don't show each other any affection or touching or love. But these things go on behind blue curtains every single day. And that's what's confusing, because as you were talking about the story with him about about how he was showing her affection and, and a lot of these men members of the families that these mods go to, it's kind of like a given that that's part of their responsibility is to handle certain needs. That just seems like the complete opposite of the thinking from the men's standpoint of what would happen in a community that's so strict religiously. You would think that they would take their vows of marriage with such, you know, sacred thoughts that that wouldn't happen. That's why it's such a hypocrisy. And they get away with it because they've got the DAs and the judges and the politicians all convinced 
that that's exactly the case. And they bring in a lot of tourist money. You know, for them, this is the way it's always been. And they're able to portray an image of being passive and anti-war and back to the land when actually it's everything the opposite. So a lot of it is just a mirage, and that's the way they want to keep it. Lizzie, according to the book, says that she was taken advantage of sexually at least two dozen times. Did she see that back then as being taken advantage of? Or like you were saying earlier, the confusion of never getting affection and getting affection. How did she interpret that at the time? Well, she was horrified at first. After the first rape took place in the barn, she went to the outhouse and she cried. And I think it wasn't until the next day when he behaved as if everything was normal, but was sort of pretending there was this new connection between them. She didn't enjoy it. But over time, first of all, she had no choice. For example, at least two neighbors walked in and saw him doing this. And nobody said anything. Nobody reported it. Yet, Word got around, and all of a sudden Lizzie was shunned, and everybody was whispering behind her back about this extramarital affairs. You can't see my air quotes, but they're there, when really she was just being raped in a barn. It's a very hard concept to explain to people, and it was a hard book to write because of that. I'm sure. Lizzie eventually makes it out. She's mm-hmm. out out in the free world trying to make it on her own. I'm sure she had no outside world experience. What happens after she gets out into the real world, so to speak? Well, a lot of people don't understand this point in the book because she gets out, she finds some semblance of happiness, and she decides to marry a man who was planning to leave the Amish. First of all, she went back to her community for a while. She couldn't handle the outside world because of all the things that happened. She almost got trafficked, you know, trying to hitchhike after her mother threw her out of the house for being raped. She finally got out with her sister. They ran away together. But Lizzie stayed in the area because she got married to somebody who had left the community but was similar minded, I think, for a long time. And she was branded as this charlatan Jezebel. And she's lived that way for years, for 30 years. And it's even worse now because she's come forward. So let's talk about that. Lizzie's out just living her life. She gets wind of some stuff that's going on, very similar to what she went through in her community. And she decides to step forward to try to help with those allegations so somebody else isn't pretty much just shunned and ignored and acted like this didn't happen. How did she find out about what was going on? I mean, obviously, she's still close to the the area, so it's not a surprise she found out these rumblings were going on. But what was it that made it so personal to her that she felt the need to get involved? She overheard her teenagers, her teenage children, talking about an incident at school where a student, a male student, was raped by a female teacher and everybody wanted to let it go oh she's okay you know we can keep her and she was being pressured to do that and then she heard her children talking about it and she heard a lot of the same words oh you know I'm sure he's enjoying it and you know whether that's true or not that's not the point right right so it triggered her and we talk about that word a lot you know when you're a victim of childhood trauma at all you know you can get triggered and she thought I don't want to hear those words come out of my kids mouth about another victim and she sat on it for a while she gave up on the book and one day she called me and she said I did it I reported him and the book took a big turn from there all of a sudden we had a case it was very exciting (laughs) (laughs) you know I was like all right this book's gonna be great (laughs) Yeah, because the book up to that point, I mean, it it was her personal stories and then it kind of stopped. But now it takes this turn to where, hey, there's a court case involved. And now she's heavily going to be heavily involved based on her past. Right. Somebody else asked, why did you skip 30 years? Well, first of all, you can't get everything in a memoir. Secondly, she was back in the general area, married with children. So She got out of the community, but I'm not quite sure she got out of the mindset. Right. So it really wasn't all that interesting. I mean, you know, soccer games, doctor's visits, right? You know, and then the book comes back to the present 
and where she takes him ultimately to the courtroom and reads her victim impact statement. Wow. Yeah, which made the judge cry, by the way. The gentleman that had caused all the abuse towards her back uh, 30 years ago, was he still in the community? Had he passed away? Is he a yes. person of interest in this story? Yes. The other reason Lizzie came forward is because she knew that he's a deacon, I believe, now in the church, which puts him in charge of a lot of children. You know, they do Bible study with the kids. He's got grandkids. And, you know, as Lizzie said in the book, she couldn't leave all those Amish children behind. And it's something that compelled her through death threats and through her children not wanting her to publish and her community just pressuring her to stop everything. This is one of the bravest women, you know, I've ever met. Where are these death threats coming from? Are they coming from the Amish community? Or are they coming from just people who just didn't like that she was standing up for herself as a prior victim? Who were they coming from? All of them. I think there was family. A lot of them were anonymous. You know, a lot were handwritten and just stuffed in her mailbox. You know, but that's what they do. They try to intimidate because they've always been above the law. And that's something that we're changing now. We are, that's a whole other story, but we're working to get DAs and judges to actually do something about this abuse and not just leave it to the pacifists, you know, extremist Anabaptists. Well, you know, that's something we had talked about a little bit before we got started on here off air. You hear so many sexual allegations in other religions, but that's why I was kind of surprised when I saw this and I thought I... I don't know why it surprised me, I guess, just because you do think of the Amish as, uh, I guess, a more pure type, simple people that follow strictly the word of the Bible. And I don't it just to me that shouldn't put them above anything. But unfortunately, that does. That's kind of the image that they have with law enforcement. And that's probably why they get a pass. But I mean, they're still people like anybody else. And if it happens in other sects of, of uh, you know, our social environment, then I'm sure it happens there as well as we've got proof of now. Absolutely. In fact, the rates are much higher than in the general population because n- nobody's been held accountable and it's generational now. So, And there are thousands and thousands of these people all across the country and even more across the world. That's a statement that catches me off guard. When I think Amish... I think the United States, and I primarily think about, you know, Pennsylvania and that, that area, because that's where the, the a higher concentration is. I don't think I ever even thought for a second that there were Amish in other parts oh, yeah. of the world. In Brazil, there are lots in South America. They go there because the government will leave them even more alone than this one does. And they can build their compounds just like any other cult, and they can stay away. There's so many wrong things here. I could talk about this for days. And that's why the book was written. We just really touched on the problem, but a lot more information is going to be coming out. Interesting. Interesting. I want to talk a little bit about you before we tell people how they can get the book. I know as you wrote this book, it was probably harder than what most authors would have had writing because You've had some sexual assaults in your background. Yeah. Do you mind talking about some of that, whatever you feel comfortable with? Sure. First, I will say that in some ways it was harder, but in the end, it was much easier for someone like me to write this book. I don't think that somebody who's never been sexually assaulted could have written this book in the same way. Makes sense. Lizzie had a lot of trouble speaking about the abuse. She didn't want to use the word rape. She didn't want to use the word shove. She didn't want to use anything that would be considered too graphic because our initial audience was for girls and women who didn't have a high school education. This is where I get tripped up, going back to my story. The one that I'll talk about is the one I used a lot for this book, and that's not a rape story. It's a grooming story. I've been public about being groomed by a film producer named James Toback when I was 15 years old. And when I came out about it, nobody really wanted to talk about that because it didn't end in typical physical violent rape. It didn't end in intercourse. But I knew that the grooming was maybe just as damaging in a lot of ways because it set me up for disaster. 
And that's what I recognized in Lizzie's story. I recognized my own, that, that desire just to have somebody touch your hair. Like, you know, and so I really wanted to talk about the grooming. My abuse started, you know, earlier and was not family involved. It was not family. But by the time I was 12, I was sitting in a Brooklyn police department as a witness to my best friend's gang rape. So I was introduced to this very early on. And we were, of course, asked, well, what were you doing there? What were you wearing? How are you different from your friends? So this is something that I know so well that I could put words to it, sometimes for her. With that said, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And I was a boxer. I got almost knocked down in the ring. And this was harder. You know, hmm. this was just nights of having to dig down deep and think about how I felt. But it was worth it. Like, we went through a journey together. And it taught me what I'm capable of and what survivors are capable of and what women are capable of. And I'm looking forward to doing it more, writing more victim impact statements, which can change the world writing more memoirs and someday writing my own and then you'll have all the answers to your questions <laughs> and i'll come back and pitch that book nice let's do this as a as a way of trying to help uh, maybe some younger listeners that we may have out there you mentioned grooming what can someone who I'm, i don't want to use the word naive but because sometimes younger people vulnerable. are naive, vulnerable that's a good choice if we've got listeners out there that are vulnerable, what are some signs that you may be being groomed? Or, uh, you know, I'm sure there's some probably some common things that, that these people do in the grooming process. What kind of things should they be looking for? Well, I'll try to speak to survivors directly, but unfortunately, a young person in this situation, I have to get the message out to the people who love those young people. Predators look for, as Tyler Perry said, blood in the water. They can smell the blood in the water. So, for example, the day I was 15 and James Toback found me on the street, I was depressed. I was lonely. I was desperate for validation and attention. He saw that a mile away. He knew exactly what to look for. And so when you have a child like that of any age, you want to be careful of adults getting too close you know, wanting to spend alone time with them, buying them gifts. And you want to teach your children consent. I wish we could say, let's educate the predators, but it's too late for them. So we need to teach our kids about consent, teach them about body parts, teach them about healthy sex. Because if you don't, they're going to learn it from someone else. And please tell, tell your kids you love them. I don't I was going to say, I don't care if you do or not, but it's true. Like, you know, I had a relatively decent childhood in relation to a lot of the things that go on in this world. And I was desperate for validation, you know, and especially girls, I hate to say it, in our, in our society today. You know, that's why they're showing their body. And, and look, I could talk about that and I won't because I was one of those girls and I get it, but I'm very protective now you know, spend time with your kids. And if you're a child, I just think it's hard. I think it's, I don't want to put the responsibility on them to see it coming. Mm. But I hope, I, that's a tough one. I don't know what somebody could have said to me when I was a teenager and I went with an older man by choice after James Toback. I really wanted my parents to know more. I really wish my parents had known more and been educated. So that's what I would say to parents, is go go educate yourselves. Come to my website if you want. I'll have a chat with you on Zoom. <laughs> MollyMave.com. Ching. <laughs> Perfect. Molly, you were, uh, am I understanding this correct, that you were a crime reporter at one point? I was. I was a crime reporter right here where I am in the Hudson Valley of New York. I was a police beat writer, and I loved it. And I was not content with writing up the obits. I wanted to go searching for bodies and interviewing criminals in jail. And that's just what I did. And I was very good at it. I won investigative awards. You know, it kind of really set me up for what I'm doing today because I know how to talk with people and how to listen, which is important when you do the work I do. Yeah, I'm sure. Behind Blue Curtains, tell people how they can find the book. 
It's on Amazon, Behind Blue Curtains by Lizzie Hirschberger with Molly May Vegan. It's published by Nauset Press. It's available on Kindle, and I believe it's available at Barnes & Noble online. And I also know it's available at select bookstores if they're lucky enough to have a copy. Inquiring Minds here in Saugerties, New York has it. I know that. <laughs> if anybody's <laughs> listening in Saugerties, go run there. Guys, as I tell you all the time, Go buy the book and leave Molly and, and Lizzie a very nice review on Amazon. And uh, I know that it helps it helps more than you realize. Yeah. And uh, and I know that they would definitely appreciate it. Molly, thank you so much for coming on. I, I know it's got to be hard talking about these tough situations over and over and over again. But it's the way to get the word out. It's uh, It's going to help more people than you will ever imagine in the long run. You know, it's an honor to be able to do it. And thank you so much for allowing me to do that today. And you made it very easy. Thank you so much. And we're glad to have you. And like you said, put that other book out and we'll have you back on. Great. Can't can't wait. All right. Thank you so much, Molly. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. All right, guys. That wraps up this week. Thank you so much for what you do for us. It means the world to us. It does, you guys. And, you know... I will say that what you guys do for us really keeps us going because there's days that we have, you know, things that go on and we have bad days. But as soon as we look at your reviews and the comments we get from you guys in the group, it really helps us get through our day. So thank you all for that. We appreciate you. All right, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Love you. Have a blessed week.